Welcome to Next on the Tee with Chris Mascaro, where PGA and LPGA players, legends, and top instructors share their stories, insights, and playing lessons. Join Chris every Tuesday night as he talks with the greats of the game. Tonight's show is sponsored by the French Lick Resort, the PGA Tour Superstore, TaylorMade Golf, the Bobby Jones Apparel Company, Two Under, Ben Hogan Golf, Golf Pride, Srixon and their Z-Star Golf Balls, and the Sandiston Resort. Now here is your host, Chris Mascaro. Hey, good evening, folks. Thank you for coming back and joining me this week on Next on the T. I really appreciate the fact that you come in, you come back every week and tune in and, and join me, and you're a part of the show, and uh, I can't thank you enough for being here, and uh, we're going to have a lot of fun over the next hour or so. Tonight, I've got three of the top instructors in the game set to join me. So we're set to help you with your golf game, help you save some strokes off your scores, enjoy yourself a little bit more, maybe a little more peace of mind, a little more confident when you're out on the golf course and on the on the putting greens as well. So very much looking forward to who I've got with me tonight. And first up is going to be Mark Wiebe. Mark won eight times as a pro, including the 2013 Senior Open Championship. He won that Open Championship in a playoff over Bernard Longer. And six years later, Longer still at it, having won his fourth Senior Open Championship. So we'll talk about that. Mark, like I say, is one of the top instructors in the game now. He teaches out at the San Jose Country Club in San Jose, California. Want to get some playing lessons from him. Want to get some tips for how we can consistently make those four-foot sort of knee knockers, right? How can we make those so we're not kicking ourselves when we're walking off the green and heading to the next tee? Also want to talk about the significance of his 70-30 club that he's got set up for his junior players. I want to talk about what that's all about. And as a former tour player, I want to get Mark's thoughts on the tour championship, how they've got things set up, right? When you look at how the, uh, how the tournament this week at Eastlake is going to be played, Justin Thomas is going to start off at 10 under par. Patrick Cantlay, who's in second, and the FedEx Cup is going to be eight under par. Brooks Kepka seven under par, and so on and so on. Is that a good way to do it? Is that really the way we want to have our tour championship and our tour champions uh, crowned by having that sort of setup? Is that good or is it hokey? I don't know. I want to get Mark's thoughts, and I want to get my other guests' uh, thoughts on that as well. Following Mark, I'm going to get a return visit from top 40, under 40 instructor Travis Fulton. Travis is sponsored by our friends at the Ben Hogan Golf Equipment Company, and and last week would have been Mr. Hogan's 107th birthday. And for about that long, players have been trying to emulate his swing. We'll talk about what made Mr. Hogan's swing so great. Break it down a little bit and what we can learn from it. also want to get Travis's tips on how we can hit better bunker shots. That's always the weakest part of my game, as you guys know, so always looking to try to fix that and get better at it. also want to talk about how to select the right wedges for our swings. We talk about bounce on this show periodically. So how do we know if our wedges are set up properly to our swings and the kind of swings that we have? Want to get Travis's thoughts on that. Plus how we can figure out how to, you know, how to putt better. What kind of stroke uh, do we need and what kind of grip on top of that do we need? What's the best for us, right? The traditional, we left hand low, we talking about claw. What, what can make us make more putts? So we'll talk about Travis with that and he'll join me a little bit later on in this half hour. Then we'll round out tonight's show with our resident director of instruction, and that's Tom Patry. Tonight, I want to get TP's tips on how we can practice better. Even, even if we can't get to the driving range, we can't get to the golf course, how can we practice in our backyards or maybe even in our living room? What are some drills that we could do around the house so that uh, we can improve our game? Also, want to get his thoughts on Tiger's caddy, Joe LaCava, who's, with, who's been inducted 
into the Caddy Hall of Fame. Tom's got somewhat of a relationship with Joe. Want to talk about that. Plus, TP helped his alma mater, going all the way back to his time in college, Florida Southern. He helped them win the 1981 Division II National Championship, and Tom won the individual title that year as well. You look at his alma mater now, the last two years, two brothers won the Division II National Championship playing at Florida Southern back-to-back. Want to get Tom's thoughts on his alma mater and what a force they are in college golf. He'll join me about 45 minutes from now. So, folks, there you have it. More great stories, playing lessons coming your way tonight on this edition of Next on the Tee. And as always, thank you so much for tuning in and taking the journey with me tonight. As you know, I always like to start off by reminding you about some of the other great golf shows out there with some friends of ours, starting with Talking Golf Getaways and my friend Mitch Lawrence and his co-host Darren Bunch. They let you know about great places to go stay, play, and even eat and drink that they're out there around the country. You can stream their podcast over on GolfTripX.com, and it's also available on other great podcasting sites like Audioboom, Stitcher, and Player.fm. Go there, check out their show, and learn about some of the hidden gems that we have around the country. His twin brother, his twin brother Matthew, also has a great golf show. It's called Backspin Golf. His show airs Sunday mornings from 8 to 9 a.m. Eastern Time, and you can stream it online by going to WLXG.com or do what I do, which is download the WLXG app. Stream it on your smartphone. It's ESPN, uh, ESPN Radio AM 1300, located up in Lexington, Kentucky. The show is fantastic because Matthew's fantastic, and it's a great way to kick off your Sunday mornings. Again, it's called Backspin Golf, and you can stream it online at WLXG.com or on the WLXG app. And folks, as you know, we are sponsored by the French Lick Resort. Let's hear what they've got going on up there from our good friend Steve Rondonero. It's a Pete Dye masterpiece, the Pete Dye course at French Lick Resort. Pete says its location on one of the highest points in Indiana makes it special. The long views, you can see many 20 and 30 miles from many of the fairways and many of the tees and greens. And, and you can see it in 360 degrees. Donald Ross's hill course put French Lick on the golf map more than 100 years ago. It's where Walter Hagen won the 1924 PGA Championship and the place where today's Symmetra Tour ladies battle each year. It's the ambience around it that makes the golf course. Combine our many resort amenities with legendary golf and you have a getaway like no other. French Lick Resort is the home of the Senior LPGA Championship, won in 2018 by World Golf Hall of Famer Laura Davies. Play the courses champions play. Plan your trip now, online at FrenchLick.com. Yeah, folks, go online to FrenchLick.com to see for yourself what a wonderful place they've got up there and to book your stay as well. And folks, as you know, the TaylorMade Golf Equipment Company has done it again with their M5 and M6 drivers. What a tremendous story both are. They both feature speed-injected twist face created through a revolutionary manufacturing process where every single head, and folks, as always, I do mean every single head is injected and calibrated to the threshold of the legal limit. So basically, every head is made to be tour spicy, speed for all of us. Check it out online by going to TaylorMadeGolf.com. Please also check out our friends at the Bobby Jones Apparel Company by going online to bobbyjones.com. They've got their semi-annual sale going on right now, savings of up to 50% off on some items. And in fact, their best-selling performance polo-style shirts are up to 60% off. Check it out online by going to bobbyjones.com. All right, folks, now back when making his seventh appearance with me here. On the French Lick Resort guest line is 2013 Senior Open Champion and now one of the top instructors in the game, and that's Mark Wiebe. Let me remind you a little bit more about Mark's background. 
He's from Seaside, Oregon, and grew up in Escondido, California. Played his college golf at Palomar Junior College and then transferred to San Jose State. While at Palomar, he was the individual medalist at the 1977 California Amateur, and he won the 1977 Idaho Amateur as well. He was named second-team All-American in 1979 while at San Jose State. That season, he and Don Levin won the Silverado Invitational in Napa, California. He turned pro in 1980 and started on the PGA Tour in 83. Got his first career win at the 1985 Anheuser-Busch Classic when he beat John Mahaffey with a birdie on the first playoff hole. He won again the following year at the 86 Hardys Golf Classic by one stroke over Kurt Byron, thanks to a birdie on 17 during the final round. Mark matched Bobby Watkins' record as being the youngest winner on the Champions Tour at 50 years and 10 days old when he won the SAS Championship. 2013, like I say, he won the Senior Open Championship at Royal Birkdale, defeating Bernhard Langer on the fifth playoff hole after a final round 66. Later in 2013, he captured the Pacific Links Hawaii Championship in a playoff over Corey Pavin. In all, he's won eight times as a professional, twice on the PGA Tour, five times on the Champions Tour, plus the 1986 Colorado Open. He's now the Director of Instruction at San Jose Country Club in San Jose, California, and I'm very thrilled he is back with me again tonight here on Next on the Tee. Hey, Mark, thanks for coming back on the show. How are you, my friend? Hey, Chris. How you doing, bud? I'm doing fantastic. Thank you, Mark. So... Mark, as you and I were communicating prior to the show, it, uh, it's been about five months since we got to have you here, but you've had some good good news, good stories going on out there in San Jose. Catch us up. What's been going on with you? Well, there's a, there's a whole bunch of stuff going on. Right now, The uh, we're, we're absolutely thriving with the uh, inside the ropes in the 70-30 club. Uh, the juniors are making, are, are just doing fantastic uh, you know, it's, we, we've talked about this before. It's, it's, I'm, what I'm sharing with the kids is not a technique or a theory or, uh, something I read about. This is, it's more about learning how to shoot lower. And that kind of involves a lot of stuff. The swing beam may be a small part of that, but the rest of it is course management, game management, short game putting, chipping, pitching, bunkers. You know, that's that's where you actually lower your score. So helping the kids uh, develop some nice practice habits and, and focus their time uh, like like the, the club stands for. About 70% of the time, we try to get the kids to work on short game, uh, putting, chipping, pitching, bunkers, flops, you name it, everything there is to do around the green. Uh, and then... Of course, 30% of the time we do focus on the range and, you know, swing type stuff. And, uh, all, all I know is when I, I see these kids going out and shooting lower and, and, and advancing in tournaments and, uh, it's, it's kind of cool to see, uh, that we're doing the right thing. It's kind of great feedback for not only them, but for us too as, as instructors to, to see some of our kids excel in some areas that, you know, maybe maybe even them didn't think they'd go this far this fast. So that's kind of that's the funnest part of the job, without a doubt. I know funnest is not a word, but um, <laughs> I, use it, I use it a lot. Anyway, that's that's kind of really happening right now. Uh, you know, school's getting ready to start, so that's all going to change for the kids, and and it should. You know, schoolwork comes first, and. Their golf will be kind of more late afternoons and weekends. 
Um, and we got a lot of kids that are getting ready to make some decisions on what colleges to go to. And it's an exciting time around uh, San Jose Country Club. And Mark, as you talk about some of the, the things that are the most fun for you now, right? As an instructor, when you're watching these junior players and they're developing their games and they're shooting lower scores, and I'm sure you're whether it's watching them on the practice range or out with a playing lesson, or maybe you're you're uh, you're seeing some of them play in tournaments. Talk about some of the things that you've seen when you're watching. You go, yeah, that kid, he's got it. She's got it. That's awesome. Talk about some of the those victories that you feel now as you're watching and living through some of your students. Well, I, I think uh, the, lately, uh, I think I've seen more adversity uh, come up with some of the kids, where, meaning it might be an unbelievable, out-of-the-blue triple bogey on a hole to go from shooting under to over and how they responded to that and how they could leave that uh, and not take it with them to the next shot, let alone the next hole, because all that does is make it worse. So, um, but to see them kind of trust that because we all go through the time that we have a bad hole and, you know, I'm 61. It's hard to shake that. I'm, I'm bummed out or mad or something for a while that I just completely botched a hole and, you know, turned a, maybe a birdie opportunity into a bogey or whatever the scenario, uh, you know, you just kind of, uh, it's hard to let that go sometimes. And, um, and the juniors don't have much reference to that. So they don't have look back and have these experiences about how to deal with certain situations. So I'm trying to help them. It's not really a shortcut, but I'm trying to share with them the different scenarios and how important it is to, get mad, get over it. Don't take that with you for one more second. Be into this next shot, this next hole, because this next shot is the most important one of the day. And, and it continues throughout your round and trying to, uh, trying to, to have them believe that sometimes because they sometimes look at me like you're a chubby white haired guy. What do you know what you're talking about? And uh, so we have our moments that, um, I, they, they see it happening. They see the scenario we talked about and then seeing them deal with it, uh, in a, either way, any way they deal with it, just dealing with it is a thrill to watch that. And one of the things you mentioned a moment ago, Mark, is course management. How do you teach the kids to be patient out on the course? And, and, you know, sometimes you just got to take your medicine, right? You've hit a bad shot. You got to take your medicine. You'll make a bogey walk to the next tee and move on from there. How do you teach them not to let a bogey turn into a double or a triple by trying to play a hero shot or not to, you know, mess up the course management piece and put yourself into, into a deeper, worse situation by trying a shot that you really shouldn't. Well, right. There's a fine line there, you know, because you want, as I don't care what age you are, you want to use your imagination. And if you see a shot and you know it in your heart, and in your gut that that's the shot to hit, it's hard to not go with that. On the other hand, I will tell you this, the better you get with your wedges, a la Tom Kite, the better you get with your wedges is to play a percentage game when you're going up to look at your shot because every shot has a plan. Not You don't just get up and hit. You have to 
your lie kind of dictates right away. Your lie and swing dictate what your plan is going to be. Do I have a good lie? Is it sitting down on the rough? Is it sitting up? Is it in the fairway? Is it in a divot? Each one has its own plan. So, um, you know, that's the first and foremost thing. And if you really do play golf this way, and it's so hard, it's so easy to sit here and talk about it, but I, I know it. I, I know this because I know when I had success or anybody I watched have success, this is where they were. They never were bothered. It never bothered them. A bad shot never bothered them. It, it, it's like it didn't happen. So I think it, in their minds, it didn't happen almost. And, and in my mind, when I was in that level of, it doesn't matter that I hit it over there because now I'm going to hit it over here and then I'll chip it up and make a putt. What's the big deal? So it's that mentality that if we can get, um, I'm telling the juniors all the time, if you're the same talent-wise as the one next door to you, you guys are exactly the same, how are you going to beat that person? And the answer is 100% mental. So we spend a lot of time on thoughts and situations and what would you think and does it matter that you just made a triple does it matter that you just made an eagle does it matter does it change your game plan do you stick stay the course um and then again each shot has a plan so i mean if we can get this down to where we're really thinking about the game as a game like if you and i just decided to play this silly game of golf how would we do it? We wouldn't start off by thinking about swing thoughts and rotate your forearms and make sure at the top the club does this. We'd be trying to hit the ball as straight and far as we could, however we did it. And trying to get that across in this day and age of TrackMan and Flightscope and Quad Pro and teachers that teach stuff that you go, whoa. You know, that's a lot. So I'm kind of trying to be that guy, I guess. Um, I just teach by my experience and my and things I've been through. And I tell the kids all the time, this is not something I made up. This is something I learned from people you don't know their names. Ben Crenshaw, <laughs> Fuzzy Zoller, you know, Tom Kite, uh, Raymond Floyd. I mean, it, the list goes forever. So Dave Stockton, Hubert Green, these these are the guys that taught me how to really play golf as a professional. So um, I didn't make this stuff up. This is all it's all good stuff. It's all for the it's great for the kids because they don't have that anywhere. So it's kind of nice to. Uh, and then of course I'm I'm a total nag on putting because I felt like you know whenever I played good in a tournament or had my wins, it wasn't because I was hitting it farther than everyone else or hitting it closer because I potted better than everybody else in the tournament. So let's start caring about our putting just, just a little bit more than normal. So that's my big so there's a lot to So there's a lot to get to on what you just said, Mark. And I want to start with, with, you mentioned some of the great players in the history of golf there a moment ago. Who are some of the guys that you played with that bad shots never bothered them? Well, Without a doubt, the best, the one I use as an example, even though the kids, some of them know him, some of them don't, but Tom Watson is the best I've ever seen in my life, ever. There's no close second. He, he is amazing. I mean, I, I've been out with him when he's hit. Every single shot he hits is perfect. 
And then I've been out with him when there's not a perfect shot even resembled a perfect shot out of his bag. And I promise you, I think the score was pretty close. And so was his demeanor. And I, I just was, I couldn't believe it because, you know, I had watched him before I got on tours. I, I teased him a little bit and said, hey, I, when I was a kid, I used to watch, and I watch everything about it. Don't miss a beat. And I watched him so many times playing with him, especially that I thought he's the toughest guy I've ever seen. I can't believe he's not bothered. And, and if he is, and how could he not be? Because that was the dumbest double bogey I've ever seen in my life he just made. But he, you, it's over. It's over. And it's an awesome thing to watch. I got to tell you, it's one of my coolest stories. I share that with the kids a lot. And Mark, you talked about wedge play and how wedge play can get you out of uh, a bad shot or you save par. Talk about lie and, and, and wedge choice and how we know which, which wedge we should be pulling based on the lie of the ball and, and uh, you know where we're trying to chip it up to. How do we know if we got the right one? Well, there's times that you're limited with your choice because if, let's say if you're in a divot and, and if there isn't, obstacle in between you and the hole that you need to elevate the ball, you you know, good luck. It's a different plan than if you were sitting really pretty. Um, so the lie kind of dictates that. But if, if you did have a really good lie, you know, we, we all pitch differently. Of course, the, the more shallow you are, um, the more vertical the club is at impact, the more you're really using your bounce on your club. So, you know, different softer ground is different bounce. You would need different bounce than harder ground. Um, but the whole story is you're trying to figure out which bounce is right for you so you can have like a zero out fault mode that you're in. This is how I, when I hit a pitch, this is how I hit it with this club um, to know which bounce um, is right for you. And that, that's why I'm, I have the, a lot of the juniors trying to have different bounces on their 60 or 58 degree than on their 54 or 52 degree, I guess it is. Um, so you, if you, you may have different lofts, but you also have different bounces according to the lie. You're going to need different bounce for different lie situations. It's hard to pick a generic one because I don't think they, for each person, if it says 12 and you and I went out to hit pitches with the same exact sandwich that had 12 degrees bounce you might think a little differently than i do as that feel because your bottom might be in a little different spot than mine so we it might be the exact same wedge and we might look semi-similar to hitting the shot but the bounce will be affected uh differently by both of us just the way we come into the ball just you know, that's how individual it is i can tell you this i'm a huge believer in bounce i don't like no bounce I like bounce on irons, all my irons, not just my wedges. So, Mark, one of the other things you talked about was putting. And I wanted to get your thoughts on putting because I saw one of, one of the great videos that you have out there earlier this summer. I know you were working with your uh, junior students on four-foot putts. What's a, what's a good way for us to make sure that we are more consistently sort of making those knee knockers so we're not kicking ourselves as we walk off the green having two putted from four feet? Right. Well, you know, there's a couple things. Mentally, uh, you need to hit the putt like you're trying to make it. You can't wish it in or hope that it goes well. You have to hit it like 
you're trying to make the putt. That's A. Um, you need to realize that on a four-foot putt, I, I mean, sometimes you have to break it down very simple. On a four-foot putt, how really how far back should your putter travel on a backstroke on a four-foot putt? You know, it could be some people might say four inches, six inches, eight inches. All I know is it's not very far because if your putter goes back further on a 10-footer and shorter on a five-footer than on a four-footer, it's even shorter yet. So I think when I remember playing on the, the pro-ams, most amateurs had longer strokes. And I thought, why, why are you taking such a long stroke on a four-foot putt? Because it's only going to lead to a deceleration when you'd rather have a shorter stroke, seemingly, that would accelerate into the ball and send it on its way. So I, <clears throat> that would be my first go-to is we don't need a whole bunch of stuff going on on a four-footer. You could take the putter back three inches behind the ball, set it on the ground, stop, pause, and then go through, and you'd make it. You could take it back three inches, set it on the ground, stop, and then go through, and you'd make a four-footer time after time. So I think we put a little too much into these perfect strokes that everybody seemingly thinks we have to make and less into aiming and making contact. Mark, one more before I let you go. And like I mentioned in your intro, you defeated Bernard Longer in a playoff six years ago to win the senior open championship. You won that event on a two day playoff. Yeah. You kind of finished almost in the dark uh, on Sunday, had to go to Monday to, to win the event four more holes that morning. What was it like sleeping on that lead, knowing you had to get up in the morning and it, uh, it's sudden death at that point. How do you deal with that? Well, uh, actually, we had played, let me see, we had played two holes, and I, I talked him into playing one more because I thought this might be my only shot to win. Bernie wins everything. So I thought I better take my, well, I have a shot. I better take it. Uh, unfortunately, we tied, so we had to, to sleep in. But I can tell you this. I was on the phone with my wife, who was then next to my son who was home and he was on the phone with whoever trying to get my flight switched around because I was supposed to leave Monday to go to Minneapolis. So I needed to have my whole thing changed because I wasn't going to make that Monday flight. So I was up so late that finally my wife and my son talked me into going to sleep, which good luck with that because I had some adrenaline going on. I'm confused. I had unpacked and packed and unpacked and then, iron and then pack. And then I got up and then I just, it was kind of a blur. I think I slept a couple hours, but all I know is when I woke up in the morning, I thought, you know what, I'm ready to do business. I tied him twice. I can win this tournament. I, I need some luck. There's no doubt. This Bernie is like one of the, are you kidding me? He's one of the all time ever's. So uh, even before his champion uh, tour record, he was already there. So, you know, I took a little good grace, and I think it was maybe my turn. And uh, it was, it was a, it was a. As looking back, it was a fun night to sleep. I'm not so sure how much I slept. <laughs> no doubt. Mark, remind our listeners how can they stay up to date with all the great things you're doing and follow you, whether it's online or it's on social media. Well, um, you know, I'm at my, the best way to get a hold of me ever is markweebygolf.com. That's my website. It's got all my emails and, uh, things we're doing with the 7030 club. If you're a junior, 
just quickly, just so everyone knows, as much as we love our stay here and have loved our stay, we are moving in about two months, and we're going to relocate in Arizona. And as soon as I know, I'm going to take my 70-30 club, and it's going with me. It's right in my back pocket. And uh, we're going to start a new program down in Arizona. And as soon as I know where that is, I would love to share that with you. So please, I'll be to our next conversation for sure. Absolutely. That's exciting news. Good for you. Look forward to having yeah, you back on the show, Mark, and talk all about it. That's awesome. Give me an excuse to get back on here with you. <laughs> Indeed. Mark, thank you so much for your time, my friend. Always a, a lot of fun having you as part of the show. I, I look forward to hearing all about Arizona and having you back on the show again real soon. That's awesome, Chris. Thanks so much, bud. All right. Take care, Mark. All the best to you and your family. That is Mark Wiebe. And uh, again, Mark Wiebe Golf, W-I-E-B-E. MarkWiebeGolf.com is, uh, is his website. Look forward to hearing all about the move to Arizona and the great things he's doing there. And always so much fun having Mark as part of the show. Uh, hopefully, like I say, we get that news again and have him back real soon. All right. Before I get to my next guest, Travis Fulton, I want to remind you about one of our sponsors. Be sure to check out our friends at the Ben Hogan Golf Equipment Company. Now, folks, if you haven't hit Ben Hogan Irons since maybe the 80s or the 90s, do yourself a favor. Get a demo iron. they got a demo program. They'll send you an iron. You can check it out, whether it's their Fort Worth PTX, new PTX Pro, or Edge irons, and take it out on the range and compare it to whatever it is you've got. All Ben Hogan irons and wedges are handcrafted one at a time in their Fort Worth, Texas factory. So no mass production, no shortcuts. Now you can order custom-made irons, wedges, or hybrids by going online to BenHoganGolf.com, and they're going to build those clubs to your specifications. And best of all, charge you a fraction of the typical retail price. Check out their complete line of forged irons, wedges, utility irons, hybrids, bags, accessories, and their new GS53 driver and fairway woods, which are awesome. Check it all out online by going to benhogangolf.com. I want to give a shout out to our friends over at Golf Pride. In golf, light grip pressure releases power. Golf Pride engineered a secret that pros know. A larger, lower hand encourages lighter pressure. Plus 4 technology is designed with four additional layers, which reduces tension in the lower hand to generate more power. Play Plus 4 and release the secret pros know. Now available on Tour Velvet, the winningest grip on Tour. Grip confidence, grip golf pride. I want to welcome our newest sponsor, Two Under Men's Performance Briefs, the unofficial underwear of the PGA Tour. Worn by PGA Tour players like Ricky Fowler, David Toms, Jerry Kelly, William McGirt, Jason Kokrak, and Matt Everett, to name just a few. Your buddies are going to think you're a stud if they're even seeing you in your underwear, but that's another story. And your girlfriend and her wife is going to love the side effects, a visibly enhanced profile. The Joey Pouch technology provides the ultimate male asset management. It separates a man's most valuable assets from bodily contact to reduce unwanted skin-on-skin contact, providing less chafing, more control, and an altogether more luxurious feel. Start every round two under by wearing the coolest performance briefs on the market. Use code ONTHET20 to save 20% off your order at 2under.com. And that's the number two, UNDR.com. All right, now back in making his fifth appearance with me here on the French Lick Resort guest line is one of the top instructors in the game, and that's Travis Fulton. Let me remind you a little bit about Travis's background. He was raised in Kellogg, Idaho, played his college golf at Lewis and Clark State College, which is an NAIA school up in Lewiston, Idaho. 
He won the Pacific Northwest Athletic Championship his junior year at the uh, Bryden Canyon Golf Course, firing a final round 66 to win by a stroke. He holds the course record there with a 61. He's been a contributing writer to the PGATour.com and Golf Illustrated. He's been named a top 40, under 40 instructor by Golf Digest and the best teacher in the state of Florida, oh, by the way. He's a regular co-host on uh, Golf Channel's Morning Drive. He's worked with guys like Fred Funk and Len Matisse out on the PGA Tour. You can follow him on Twitter, at Travis Fulton, and on Instagram, at Travis Fulton Golf. I'm delighted he's back with me again tonight here on Next on the Tee. Hey, Travis, thanks for coming back on the show. My pleasure. Thanks uh, for having me, Chris. So, Travis, I gotta, I gotta get your thoughts. Uh, you know, you signed on with Ben Hogan Golf, and uh, they're certainly one of our sponsors as well. And uh, I know you've been doing a lot of work with them, doing a lot of studying of Mr. Hogan, who would have been 107 years old last week. Um, and I think for about that long, people have been trying to replicate his swing and understand what made it so great. When you've looked at it, what was, what was, what are some of the keys to Mr. Hogan's swing that we can all take from it? Well, he. Um literally i think used ball flight as the engine that allowed him to make all of the necessary changes uh, in his swing to hit the ball flight that he knew that he could compete with and that he knew uh he could win and he did it on his own you know and you know the old saying is dig it out of the dirt and i think mr hogan actually did that he he dug it out of the dirt he paid attention to the ball flight uh, he learned through trial and error all of the components that influence the face, that influence the club head, that influence the club shaft, whether it was his hands, his arms, uh, his body. And uh, he put it together. You know, it, it's pretty remarkable um, what he was able to do really on his own. And I'm sure he had, you know, a, a little bit of counsel from time to time. But for the most part, I think he really went about it uh, on his own, and it's really remarkable um, what he was able to put together. It's a golf swing that is obviously iconic, probably the most downloaded, probably the most looked at uh, on YouTube. And even to this day, as you mentioned, um, you know, doing work with Ben Hogan Golf and looking at the videos and and, and putting um, videos out there that um, represent Mr. Hogan and what he did well, still get a lot of views, still get a lot of comments, and um, perhaps will never be replicated again. And Travis, when you're working with your students, are you looking at a, someone like Mr. Hogan in his swing and trying to say, hey, look, this is, this is the golf swing. This is how, it's, how it should be done. And you try to teach along emulating that within your students? Or are you a more, you know, hey, we hear a lot nowadays, swing your swing. We got a lot of unique swings out on the PGA Tour. Matthew Wolf, when you look at at his swing, certainly not a classic. Jim Jim Furyk, not a classic. How do you teach your students? Are you working with what their mobility and their flexibility and their swing looks like, or are you trying to mold it a little bit by taking some things like we would see with Mr. Hogan? Well, I think when you look at Hogan, you know the, the first thing when you look at the book that he put together, the um, you know the five fundamentals that he really kind of abided by, and it was kind of really built on not hooking the ball early in his career. He would hit too many hooks and he went about some, I think, changes that really took some pressure off the club face, starting with the grip. His left hand uh, was very much a weak grip 
and then he also cupped his lead wrist at the top, and that combination is going to get the face certainly in a more um, open position at the top. And it worked for him because he quickly on the downswing uh, took that cup left wrist and flattened it out, shaft um, iconically shallowed out early in the downswing. And he was able to really manage the closure rate, if you will, of the club face. He was able to manage that slightly open face with the shaft shallowing out beautifully in the impact. Now, that's a tall task for the amateur player. Um, you know, I think when you're working with amateurs, you can certainly learn a lot from the shallowing of the shaft. You can learn a lot from his pivot. You can learn a lot from what you're seeing through the impact zone. But I think the reality is, and to the masses of golfers, you're you're really trying to get the club face in a more of a square to slightly closed position. Um, the lead wrist is usually um, more often in a better position for amateurs when you flatten it out at the top um, rather than cupping it like you see with Hogan. And you're trying to get the club face in a, in a, in a situation where it makes your life easier to get the face squared up at impact. And um, so I think you got to be careful sometimes, you know, with Hogan in particularly, very specific in the way he went about his components with the grip, with the cup and the lead wrist. And I think, to be quite honest, those two components don't fit the game plan of most amateurs. You know, you're, you, again, you're trying to get the left wrist flatter, you're trying to get the face more shut, and then from there, they have a better chance to shallow the shaft out, they have a better chance to lean the shaft forward, and they have a better chance to get the body to participate in a, in a better manner through impact. And Travis, as you talk about squaring the club, and you're right, most of us have a hard time getting that done. And I, when I look at even my buddies when we're playing, um, I think we, we struggle right off the get-go, and it's on the, on the takeaway. I, you know, One of my buddies takes it way too far outside right at the moment that he moves away from the ball at address. It's on an outside-in uh, kind of thing, and he's obviously uh, slices the ball into the woods. The majority of the time, I got another buddy who takes it way on the inside, and that causes a hook. How can how can we do a better job as amateurs? I mean, because I think we start to make our mistake almost immediately when we're taking the the club away from the ball at address. How can we be more consistent with that? Well, I think the backswing matters. I work on the backswing a lot, you know, with amateurs. You know, I think the concept of swing your swing it's fun to say, but the reality is, it's I think for most it's just insanity, right? I mean, you you swing your swing, you put time in, and we expect different results. But the reality is, is the probability of your impact position based off of your swing kind of is what it is. And it, it plays out over years and years of golf for lots of people. It has peaks, it has valleys, but, you know, that range kind of is what it is. And I think to, to move skill set forward for so many, you have to, you got to shape the backswing differently. And what's interesting when you do that for a lot of players, then it changes the probability of impact. And as they start finding impact, their good shots are better and their bad shots are not as bad. So the dispersion tightens up. And now all of a sudden they have the opportunity to kind of develop a little bit further forward with more skill. And I think when you, when you look at what those components are, I think, you know, the first move back so often is butchered to your examples where the club head so often gets inside. And I think with the club head, you've got to get the club head working up. You've got to get the club head working kind of out in front of you. 
But in doing that, your hands have to travel inside. And that can be difficult for a lot of people where you're turning, you're letting your hands travel in, but the club head's got to stay what appears to be a little bit more out in front of the hands. And as you're doing that, the club face, you, you really don't want to over-rotate open. So the toe kind of stays down. And you get to that halfway spot where the club shaft's parallel to the ground, well, it should be roughly pretty much parallel to your toe line. And if the club head's a little outside your hands, then so be it for most players. What you don't want is you don't want your hands moving away from you, and then the club head gets inside the hands. That's a death move. It's very difficult to develop from there. So I think hands traveling in, the club head working a little outside the hands, the toe slightly down so the face is square, gets things started nicely, and then from there... You can really turn the hip aggressively. You can rotate the shaft, start flattening out that left wrist. And I think what happened, and what helps so many is getting them to pinch that trail elbow towards the left. I think one of the biggest misconceptions in the golf swing is is really the trail elbow, Chris. And so often I, I you hear players trying to keep the right elbow close to their hip or pulling down the right elbow to their hip. And really the significance of the trail elbow is that the right for a right-handed player, that right elbow should be trying to pinch the left. You should be trying to pinch the left elbow, the leading elbow. We call that external rotation in the shoulder. And that movement countered with that lead hand flat uh, is really a component and an opportunity for so many. And when they and when they kind of get that down, boy, it changes the probability impact and starts making things a lot easier. Travis, I want to move along and talk about um, some of the Ben Hogan equipment and and, um, really want to start with the putters. And one of the things that I love is you've got a a wonderful video where you talk about the different putters that uh, the Ben Hogan Golf Equipment Company has. And, boy, I've I've been using the the Ben Hogan uh, BH01 putter because I love the way the ball feels when it comes off the face. I love how flat that that putter lays on the green. And in your videos, you talk about the different putter head options, and then you also adjust the shaft lean a little bit differently with the different uh, putter head options. Talk about why you change shaft lean and what difference that makes based on which putter you choose. Well, I was talking about the different types of grips as well, and I think when you look at their line, the four different putters, you know, you've got the like the BHO one, as you were talking about, it's kind of your, you know, traditional look, and then you can, you can get into a little bit more of an offset look, and then you can get into the mallet um, as well. So there's there's some different styles when you look at the Ben Hogan putter line, which is, of course, important because you know what we're all looking at is important, and and it's got to look good to the eye. So you've got to have some options there. And as you're looking at the options, oftentimes not only is the head different, but you'll see that how the shaft is sitting um, and inserted into the head can be a little different as well. So, you know, I think traditionally when you when you look at putting, you want to have a little bit of forward shaft lean. I mean, it's not it's certainly not like the full swing. So your conventional, um, you know, kind of reverse overlap grip as you see on the PGA Tour when you play the ball slightly forward in the stance, you're going to have a little bit of forward shaft lean. Now, as you, you know, you start getting into different putting options, and in one of the videos I was talking about left hand low, and as you start moving into that lead hand low, now the shaft starts to lean um, a little bit forward, and, and then that can start to change maybe, you know, some of the look 
um, with the putter head. And as you, I believe it's the BHO2, has a little bit more offset in the shaft. It's either the O2 or the O3. I think it's the O2. has a little bit more offset in the shaft. And perhaps that could look a little bit better to the eye for those that go into more of a left-hand low. And then, of course, in that video, I'm talking about the claw, talking about the saw, talking about the pencil and all these different variations that you're seeing in the trail hand. But I think with putting, you've got to, it's got to look good to you. Um, it's got to feel good to you. It's got to sound good to you. And, and all those things, you know, are so important. And then as you start to roll putts, and you start to maybe understand a little bit about your stroke characteristics, and you can you can start dialing in and making, you know, educated decisions on what the best putter is for you. Travis, one of my favorite clubs in my bag right now is my 50-degree Ben Hogan Equalizer Wedge. Talk about the importance of wedges because they've got, they've got, they come in various bounces. They've come in different degrees, 50-degree, 54-degree, 56, and all that sort of thing. So there's a lot of things that we have to consider to make sure we have the right wedges in our bag, what are some of the things that you talk to your students about to decide what the right uh, degree of bounce is and then degree of loft to make sure that they're hitting the right shots for their swings? Well, I think you got to get the loft discussion in there first. You know, you have to get the wedges gapped accordingly. Are you going to you're going to go into three wedges. You're going to go into four wedges. That's one of the things I like about Ben Hogan is they give you a lot of loft options starting at 50 and then going all the way up to 62. And I think they might even be making a 64 as well. So you've got the two-degree loft increments with the equalizer wedges that you can gap accordingly, right? So, you know, usually you want to try to keep into that four to five-degree window of gapping. So depending upon what you're doing on the top end of your bag is probably what's going to determine how many wedges you're going to carry. Um, at the bottom end. You know, I'm a fan for most players to have some bounce with that 56-degree wedge or 58-degree wedge. I mean, bounce is relief. Um, It's only going to help the club glide um, a little bit through the bunker. It's going to help glide uh, through the turf. So bounce can be very much um, your friend. And if you're playing in sand that's very fluffy, you've got some sand to work with, um, you've got some rough to work with, then that bounce can be very helpful. Now, if you don't have much sand, conditions are a little firmer, then you might want to take a little bit of that away. So I've always said, like, you know, to the amateur, if I had to give them two numbers, I would say 56-14, 56 degrees of law, 14 degrees of bounce. You could take a little bit of that bounce away to 12 if the conditions are a little bit firmer at the course that you're playing in. But say you go 56-14, then you might go 60 degrees, and then, you know, you don't need as much bounce there. You can kind of back it down to 10 or 12 into the 60-degree wedge or even into the 62-degree wedge. So, you know, I think um, 56-14, I find myself saying that a lot. The equalizer wedge does have a lot of relief. It's an interesting design um, that you get that relief on the back end, but you also get a little relief kind of on the front end when you can lean the shaft forward and the way the leading edge is designed, it'll give you a little relief there as well. So you can kind of be aggressive with the wedge, whether you're leaning the shaft, you know, pretty forward out of the rough, or you want to set it more neutral or lay it back to hit that high flop shot. So it really is a good wedge, and the performance of it and the feedback's been really good. And Travis, the weakest part of my game is bunker play, and you talk about the 60-degree wedge. I saw you got a great video tip out there. 
using the 60-degree equalizer wedge. Talk about picking the right wedge for greenside bunker shots and how we can take the fear out of that shot. Well, I think the 60 certainly has value um, in the greenside bunker. And, you know, I think the bunker shot is probably the greenside bunker shot, I think, is one of the more difficult shots to set up. I've never bought or set up to. I've never bought into the fact that it's the easiest shot because it's the only shot where you don't hit the ball first. I just, it's never been the case for me in 20 years of teaching on the lesson team. I've got thousands and thousands of students across the country that would agree with that. And because the bunker is, you know, a lot of us are, we're afraid to get into the bunker. And if we do get into the bunker, it just ruins everything because we have a hard time getting out. Um, I think that the, some of the most important characteristics in a bunker shot is that you have to create some arm swing and you've got to create some speed with the chest. And I think given those two components, what that's begging for is enough loft at the face where you don't feel like you're going to blast it over the green, right? So obviously we know the face needs to be open. I think the shaft can be very neutral. You know, I, I don't think you need to be leaning the shaft too forward. If you have a lot of sand to play with, you can even lean the shaft a little back. But wherever you put the shaft, you, you want to kind of stand to the handle. And, and what that means is the butt of the club is pointing at your belt buckle. I think it's helpful to lower the handle a bit. And I think it's very helpful for players that when you play the ball forward in the stance, say you play it off your kind of your left chest area for a right-handed player, their left chest, your lead chest, you want to get your shoulders more level. You know, that's where I think short game can be very different. In the full swing, you want to tilt your spine away from the target. And in short game, you want your spine to be more neutral. You want your shoulders very level. So I think when you move the ball forward, you want to put your weight a little forward and you want to get your shoulders more level. And that gets your sternum more on top of the ball. And I think that dynamic really helps people. And and then from there, now they can swing their arms. They can kind of swing their arms back with the hinge, get some arm swing working up. The club will fall. You turn the chest. The club head kind of splashes the sand, works past the lead wrist. And now you can really turn the chest with some speed and splash it out of there. So hopefully some of that, those components kind of formulating the setup there allows players to, to get some arm swing going, turn the chest with speed. And now you can really feel like, okay, I'm splashing this out. This is that high lofted greenside bunker shot that I was missing. Travis, just a couple more before I let you go. I want to switch gears yeah. a little bit. I want to get your thoughts on the tour championship and the the tour playoffs just sort of in general. What are, what are your thoughts? What do you think? Does, does the PGA Tour need a playoff system? Is this beneficial for the game? Yeah, I do. I, I think it is good for the game. You know, I, I think um, it, it's it's something that is, it, I think we're having a hard time kind of wrapping our mind around a little bit. We know that the four major championships are, are the big four tournaments uh, of the year, but I think the sustaining force of golf throughout the year in pro golf is the PGA Tour. And the four major championships, of course, stand alone. But we can't forget that, that the PGA Tour is this, this, you know, 10, 11 month engine business that's working year round and creating a tremendous amount of value and, and, and tremendous work, as we know, in charities and in cities all across the country. So I think it's, I think it's important, and I think it's noted that the tour, obviously their flagship being the Players' Championship, I think it's understandable and reasonable of what they're trying to do from a playoff standpoint, trying to make the 
duration of the season really have value, not just the four major championships of the year. So these cities are seeing the best players in the world play and play more often, like we've seen in the WGCs. And I think it's reasonable to try to bring that to some big conclusion, especially when you have sponsors like FedEx who see the value in that. So I think when you look at big picture um, and you look outside the four majors, I think it makes a lot of sense. I think it's a difficult task um, to, to get this to come to an end that makes sense because the game of golf is so different than any other sport that we've seen where the playoffs, I think, do make a little bit more sense. And when you're dealing with, I think, individuals, 140 fields and trying to reduce that down to one big winner. It's a tough task. So I'm kind of excited to see how this plays out this year. I think it's a good step in the right direction, but I, I expect to see tweaks and changes in the years to come as we've seen in the past. What about with the tour championship this week? How do you feel about the staggered leaderboard where Justin Thomas gets to start off the week 10 under par and Patrick Cantlay minus eight and et cetera, et cetera. What do you think about that concept? Well, I think it's, you know, I, I think it's it's something, right? You know, I mean, I, I, I applaud them for making change. Um, you know, the PGA Tour is a big engine, um, and sometimes it, it's really easy to get caught up in how we used to do things, and, and this is the way it's been. But so I applaud them for making changes and, and saying, look, we're trying to we're trying to bring the playoffs to an end here, and we're trying to make the these these tournaments down the stretch mean more, which they do. And as you play into the into the top thirty, you're gonna have there's going to be it's gonna be staggered a little bit. Um as we've seen with Justin Thomas at ten under and then I think Kepka is at eight under and so forth. So you know, is it is it the exact thing that is going to be happening for years to come? I don't know. But I applaud him for, for making the change to seeing how it works and then learning from there. So I kind of like it. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of interested to see how it plays out. Travis, before we let you go, remind our listeners how they can stay up to date with uh, all the great lessons and videos and the things that you're doing. Follow you both online and on social media as well. Yeah, my uh, my Instagram is my home. As you know, Chris, it's at uh, Travis Fulton Golf. That's where I put all my uh, content out and all my uh, my new program, Operation Baby Draw, is my uh my new training program that uh, you can get there in my bio and uh, on my Instagram page. And it's been fun to, to see all my followers and all the people that are getting into this, this training program, um, you know, and, and, and kind of helping them navigate the waters, give them context to, to self-discover. And as I said earlier, improve the probability of impact. That's what we're trying to do. Play once a week, play once a month. What can I do to, improve the probability of impact so I can hit a little bit better shots and, uh, and the bad ones be not so bad. Well, Travis, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to come back and be a part of the show again tonight. Always really enjoy getting to spend time with you. So I really appreciate it. And uh, hopefully we'll get the opportunity to catch up soon. Okay. Take care. See you, Travis. That's Travis Fulton. Travis Fulton Golf is uh, where you can find all his stuff on Instagram. He's a great follow. Got a lot of really good videos out there as well. So make sure you check it out. And like I say, hopefully we get to catch up again uh, with Travis real soon.
All right, before I get to my next guest, Tom Patry, I want to remind you about our good friends over at the PGA Tour Superstore. They're uh, sponsoring this segment of the show. This segment of the show is brought to you by the PGA Tour Superstore. See why golfers everywhere are proud to call PGA Tour Superstore their golf pro shop. Visit them online at PGATourSuperstore.com. Now back to Chris and more of the show. And now back with me here on the French Lake Resort guest line is our resident, director of golf and that is tom patry tom is a golf tips magazine top 25 instructor he uh, served this summer as a director of instruction at the hawthorne's golf and country club in fishers indiana shortly tom will be headed back down to naples florida which is uh, his winter residency you can visit him at esplanade golf and country club in naples to get your golf lessons down there tom is absolutely fantastic he's got a great website tompatry.com go on there and subscribe to his newsletter as well and it's always a privilege to have him as part of the show. ATP, how are you, my friend? Chrissy, my man. What's happening, big boy? <laughs> ah, it's always great when you're a part of the show, TP. How are things going for you, my friend? Oh, pal, if I was any better, I'd be you. You know, Chris, I, we got we to gotta kind of rush this segment because I know you want to get off because at 10 o'clock on ESPN, the Yankees are on. I know you want to watch that tonight. Yeah, um, I so. know. Yeah, I wouldn't want to miss the start of that game, goodness! I, yeah. <laughs> how was your How was your trip to How was your trip to Boston? It was awesome, Tom. I you know good, good. I know you and I talked a little bit while uh, we were uh, headed up that way, but uh, the North End in Boston is outstanding. The food and uh, you know it's that awesome, Italian man. section, we yeah yeah the food up there is outstanding. So yeah, we had a great time there, and and uh, our good friends over at Legal Seafood to get some lobster as well, and then. A couple of games oh, at Fenway Park. One was awesome, sitting on the Green Monster, watching us destroy the uh, Angels 16 to four. The next day, Oof. we got to hand it right back to us, and we lost 12 to four. So, a, a, a tale I'm of two actually, games, actually, but yeah. all in all, great. I'm actually heading up to uh, Portland, Maine, the end of September with my wife to do a little striper bass fishing and uh, and see some friends up there and eat some lobster myself. So I'm looking forward to it. Ah, good for you, my friend. Be sure to take some pictures. Yeah. And let me know how that yeah. goes. I will so, definitely TP, I want to get your thoughts on a couple of things, and I want to start by getting your thoughts on Joe LaCava, who is Tiger's caddy. He got inducted into the Caddy Hall of Fame. I saw your tweet about him. Uh, you got? Have you gotten to spend some time with Joe over the course of time? Yeah, you know, Joe was uh, with Freddie for twenty plus years, and you know, Fred Fred's a good friend from college, and and Joey through the Fred relationship became a very good friend of Denise, Denise and mine, and. Uh, uh, when when Joey and Fred were together and they played either in the Shark Shootout or the, or in Fred's early career in the Champions Tour, they'd stay at the house with us during the winter when they came to town. So Joey Joey spent some time in the house and we got to be very close to him. And he's a he's a unique individual because he's a, an extremely humble guy. He, you know, for the success he's had and the bags he's carried and been a part of and the, and the contributions he's made. And uh, and I can promise you, during Fred's career, he was. He was way more than a caddy to Fred, and, and I think the same. I I don't know much about the relationship with Tiger. I haven't had that much that that much insight into that you know that relationship. But I had a lot with Freddie, and uh, he's a incredibly humble guy. He's very very talented at, at his craft. He's a uh, a very calming influence on the bag. A pretty good player himself. Play, you know, plays the game nicely himself, and just just a quality human being. So I, I couldn't be happier for him. I think that induction is long overdue. 
he's um, in the annals of golf history. I think 25 or 30 years from now, when when you and I might be dead and gone, he'll be looked back as one of the, one of the great you know craftsmen of of that of that uh, skill set ever. You know, right up there with anybody you can name. You know, whether it was Angelo with Jack or you know, it was Stevie Williams or Bones or anybody you can name. You can go back further, but he, he was he's very, very talented at what he does. Tom, I want to switch gears a little bit. I want to, I want to go back to your time in college and uh, at your alma mater, oh, Florida oh, Southern. Oh. And, you, <laughs> and you led them to a Division II national championship back in 1981. Your team won that event by 35 strokes. You capture the individual title as well talk to me about what you remember about being a part of florida southern at that point in the school's history and then uh, being a part of a national championship team well chris we have to go back to the previous century to do that first of all so i mean <laughs> you know we're going we're, we're going we're going we're going way back uh it was 19 i was there in 1980 and 81 i transferred in there uh as a junior uh they had never won a national championship at that time although they had been they had knocked on the door the previous three years, uh, the year before I got there, Tom Gleaton, who's now a club professional in, uh, in Connecticut, um, won the individual. He was the first individual champion. So when I joined that team in 80, um, there was a lot of expectation for that team. And, uh, in 80, we, we lost by a shot. Uh, and it's a, it was a pretty controversial loss. We were penalized six shots in the second round. And it's a long story, but it was, I think basically they, they, really kind of screwed us on the ruling, but that that's a whole long, six shots and lost by one. So when we went there in 81 to uh, Simsbury Hot Meadow Country Club in Hartford, Connecticut, we were, we had a chip on our shoulder. And truthfully, one of the great things about that team and that program was Charlie Matlock, who uh, unfortunately passed away a couple of years ago, who was a dear friend, became a dear friend of mine, our coach. Um, he played a very, very strong, you could do this back then, we played a very, very strong Division One schedule all year long and played very few D teams all year. So, you know, so we played, you know, whether it was Alabama or Florida or Georgia or, or Tennessee or Texas, um, we played at Wake Forest, North Carolina. We played a kind of Georgia Tech. We played a very, very D1 schedule all year long. So when we got to the Division II National Championship, we were underwhelmed by the competition, quite frankly, and, and we we really felt like we were the best team in the country, and and uh, and proved it that week. I think that year, if I'm not mistaken, individually we finished first, third, fifth, seventh, and eleventh individually in that tournament. Uh, I think the worst place finished for of our five players was eleventh uh, the year I won. So we we really kind of steamrolled that that golf tournament, um, and that. That kind of launched that whole Florida Southern um, golf program. Uh, I think, you know, I don't know how many they've won right now. I, I, I lost track, but I think they've won 13 or 14 national championships. I, I, I might be wrong. Uh, they've, had, they've had the no, last 13. two individual national championships. 13, okay, 13. The last two individual national championships probably had eight or nine. You know, if you look at the roster of guys who played Florida Southern, Lee Jansen won two U.S. Opens, Rocco Immediate. Lost the Tiger in a historic playoff at Pebble Beach. Marco Dawson won the British Senior Open. Um, you know, for a Division II team to produce those kind of players uh, was unprecedented. And, uh, and really, frankly, Chris, looking back, you know, I, I, was, I was on the cusp of a change in college golf. I, the 1980-81 period 
right after that golf changed dramatically. Uh, the golf, the golf ball started going a lot further. Um, people played the game very differently. It became very much a power game, which it really wasn't during my time. Um, so I, I was right in the transition period of the game really changing, uh, both on the collegiate and professional levels. But it was, uh, it's a great memory. I, I've, uh, I, I got away from the program for a while. The man that came in and coached after Charlie was not um, very receptive to some of us coming back and participating, which was too bad. But the, the kid who's at the helm now, Lee White, who played there, uh, has taken over the program. He's reached out for some of us, and I'm hoping we'll be back involved. And actually invited me up in January to spend a day with the team. So I'm really looking forward to doing that again for the first time in a long time. Uh, and hopefully that will create a, a little more user-friendly nature for some of the alumni to get back and get involved again. And Tom, one of the things that we've talked about over the last couple of visits is is about some of the younger guys coming out on tour and having success right out of college and onto the PGA Tour. And we talked about Matthew Wolf and Colin Morikawa, Victor Hovland, those guys. And, and you you talked about it being right on the cusp of change. How much has, do you think the college golf game has changed since your time at Florida Southern? Oh my goodness, because it, it's it's not even close. Like. I have a, a young man up here with me in, in Fishers right now working with me who plays uh, Big Ten golf, who I've worked with for about oh, just under a year now. And um, we spent some time together in the last in the last year, and he's a very fine player, uh, Had made a real kind of breakthrough in his golf game this summer and did some wonderful things. Um, and we played a couple holes, say, late in the day after we worked together. And, you know, you know, hits it. It's a 300 yards. I mean, everybody hits a 300 yards, Chris. Everybody. I mean, that's the norm. I mean, when I was playing college golf, when somebody hit a 280 or 290, they were kind of freakish. And if anybody hit 300 yards, I mean, everybody talked about it. You know, it was like somebody hit a 300 yards today. Now, now if you don't hit a 300 yards, you're not, truthfully, Chris, when a kid comes to me now and wants to has a dream of playing college golf, I always feel bad. When, no matter how talented the kid is, if he gets to me and I watch him hit some balls, and he doesn't hit it very far. I almost have to. I I almost have to tell him that maybe you know you should go play checkers or chess or something because <laughs> you're not going to compete. You're not, it's not going to work out. I mean, it's just not. It, those days are over, man. If you don't hit it three plus or can't at least hit it in that area, it's not going to work out. It's it's those days are past. So the game really has changed. It's become a power game. Uh, I, I feel bad and I, and I try very hard with my players today to develop their wedge play, their intermediate wedge play, their short game skills, their managerial skills. Uh, I think that's what's missing in some cases with the really good player out there and the not so good player. I think that more Cower, for example, and I think Matthew Wolf, if you watch them, they hit it a long ways, but they have a lot of good shots to hit around the greens and they hit a lot of, you know, knockdown or flighted shots very well. And I think that's the difference when some of the coaches out there who are training some of the more elite players, they get the fact that, yeah, they have a power game, but they need those, those, those skill sets that can control flight and trajectory and curve um, if they're really going to be elite out there. So let's, let's switch gears and let's talk about some of those playing lessons and some of the things that we can do to maybe save ourselves from strokes. One of the things that, um, I wanted to get your thoughts on Tom because m- many of us can't get out to the uh, out to the golf course, you know, two or three or four times a week. Whether we're playing golf or we're getting onto the driving range, what are some things? What are some training aids that we can have at home that maybe we can go in our backyards to practice 
practice our swings, maybe practice our short game, or even on a rainy day, bring it in the house and try to do some things to hone our games there as well. Yeah, I, I think I think there's a lot of things you can do, Chris. I mean, I think I'm heading back to Naples, as you know, but, you know, for the people who are, you know, north of the Mason-Dixon, um, and even you up in Atlanta, you know, it gets chilly up there. You get days you really can't be outdoors. I mean, things like an impact bag, things like a mirror to work on your positions in front of in front of a mirror during the winter, things like speed sticks, things like a swing fan, uh, you know, a place you can putt indoors, even if you can set up a, a net in your garage. I mean, there's a lot of things you can do. And now, like, for example, I have a an online video academy, V1 video academy that people send me, you know, subscribe to, and people send me videos, and we work remotely. A lot of the videos I get during the winter from my from my online students are being filmed indoors. They're hitting shots into a net, or they're doing drills in front of a mirror, and I'm commenting on the drills and, and you know, working them through how to tweak them and make them better, a stretching program. There's so much you can do indoors, you know. So, I mean, if if, if, you're, if you're stuck in the Northeast or you're stuck in, you know, the Midwest, where it's not very user-friendly outdoors, you know, we we can. There's a lot of things we can still do to enhance your golf game. And Tom, you were always, and I'm sure still are, a very incredibly straight driver of the golf ball. What's a tip that we can do? Because so many of us that only get to play on the weekends, we're either slicing it into the trees or we're we're hooking it, you know, down the left-hand side. What are some things that we can do and we can work on to become more consistent and hit more fairways. You know, Chris, it's funny. You know, not so much for my elite players, but for my recreational players to come, I got to tell you, 99% of the time, I see their, their hands on the club incorrectly. I, I see the grip is way too weak in their left hand. Um, they've got it in the palm of their hand. They've got it in the palm of their right hand. The hands are not unified enough. So, you know, it, it, I tell them all the time, you know, the, the grip is like the steering wheel of a car. And if you if you had your hands upside down and crossed on the steering wheel, you spend time hitting the guardrail a lot. So the way you put your hands on the club is going to give you a fighting chance to square the face uh, and have control of the golf face during the course of your golf swing. And after we've got the grip in place, I don't think people understand the face path relationship very well, uh, and and where and how to feel the face path relationship or how to drill the face path relationship. And that's where I go back to things like the impact bag indoors. And, and different kind of drills to work on face and path. So I, I think you got to start out with a good sound grip and put your hands. Listen, there are, there are a lot of bad grips on the PGA Tour, but they're anomalies. They're outliers. I mean, Freddie does not have a great, what we call a classic grip. Um, but you, you've got to discount that. You're not, you're not Freddie and you don't have Freddie's talent and hand-eye coordination. I think you look at guys like Adam Scott, you look at guys like Tiger, uh, you look at guys like Mr. Hogan who grip the club, you know, very classically, and those are your models. Tom, you've mentioned an impact bag a couple of times, and I think one of the things I that have. most of us don't understand is what what does that tell us? If I if I went out and bought an impact bag and I started hitting my golf clubs and my irons into it, what what am I looking for? What's it going to tell me? You know, you know, Chris, it's interesting you ask me that because very often I'll walk down a range at at a club. Uh, any club I've ever worked at or taught at, and you'll see a, a 15 handicap rehearsing his backswing. And when I when I walk up and say, "Tell me exactly what you're rehearsing and why," often they can't give me an answer. And I'll say to them, "Do me a favor, show me impact." And they look at me like I have three heads. I'll say, "Well, show me impact. Show me what impact would look like." And they'll get into some kind of contorted position where their hands are pressed real forward. The face, is, the face is aimed way to the right or looking way to the right. Um, 
the, their spine will be inverted quite a bit. They're hanging on their right foot. Their left hip is not open very much. Um, you know, their, their shoulders are way left of the target. All their lines basically are wrong. So I said, you know, it's funny. If you really knew what impact looked or felt like, and that's all you ever rehearsed, I, I think you'd be way down the road. I mean, and I said to him, listen, Jack Nichols had a flying right elbow. Jim Furyk looks like an octopus falling out of a tree. Raymond Floyd laid the shaft off. But if you look at their impact positions, pretty good. So instead of spending a lot of time rehearsing a backswing that you don't understand, what if all you ever rehearsed? If, if, and, I'm, I'm, and I'm being a little facetious here, but all you ever rehearsed was an impact position that was really, in fact, understood and pristine. Do you think you'd have a better chance? So I, I think if you can get with your coach and really define, really allow him to define for you what impact is, and you took an impact bag and a full-length mirror, and all you did was rehearse an impact condition all winter long, I gotta believe when the sun came out in April, you'd be better off. Tom, one of the other strengths of your game is putting. And we've talked about this before that, you know, the putting green is an area where most of us don't spend enough time practicing. And that's a place where we lose a lot of strokes. We're three putting our way around the golf course. So we're, we're throwing away 36 strokes at least or 18 strokes at least, uh, you know, through the course of our round. Talk about the importance of spending 20 to 30 minutes regularly practicing your putting. 20 to 30, you said 20 to 30 hours, right? <laughs> hours? Yeah, I meant minutes that. Or hours? Hours, of course. Yeah, hours, right. So, you know, I have a, at, at, at Hawthorne's this summer, there's a, there's a short game area right behind the practice tape. And so often, Chris, I'll look down the range and the range will be full. I'll look over in the short game area, there'll be one person over there, and he'll be over there for five minutes, and he'll get bored, and he'll walk away. And and putting practice by the amateur is considered taking three balls to the putting green and putting from hole to hole, which is basically a waste of time. So when I grab somebody finally, I convince them that, listen, they need to spend some time doing this, and we, then we define what time means. I, I'll set up any number of skill drills, whether they're face, face and path drills, whether they're speed control drills, or, you know, we'll go through reading a green, you know, we'll, we'll go through, you know, any kind of drill that will enhance a skill in putting. Um, no left first, no left first breakdown, you know, staying fairly stationary, keeping your head still during the stroke, what, any, any, any number of things. And we'll, we'll define what their particular weaknesses are and we'll assign drills to the weaknesses and say, listen, this is your putting practice routine now. This is your, your putting laboratory. This is how you set up your putting practice. And they'll look at me like, man, I've never done this before. And I, I just can't, I find it so hard to believe that one, nobody's wrapped their head around the fact that that one club, that little flat club that kind of occupies that one little spot in your bag, you know, accounts for about 43% of the shots you're going to hit. And the second highest stat is about 11%. That that putter is going to, is going to rule or ruin your day. When you're hitting it good and you putt well, you capitalize. When you're hitting it bad and you putt well, you, you stay respectable. So if you can't, if you can't understand that mathematically from a common sense standpoint, you really don't understand golf. So Tom, one of the things you talked about is reading the greens. And I tell you, that's a place that, uh, you know, my buddies and I struggle, right? How, how many times, and then you even see this a little bit on the PGA tour where we, we would go up there and we'll, we'll line up the putt. We'll stroke it, and then it breaks one direction, and we're like, I thought it was going to break the other way. How did it break that way? 
I think we're bad readers of the green. What are some of the things that you do or we can do better to make sure we're reading the break of the putt uh, more consistently? Well, one of the things I do, one of the drills I do, uh, Chris, is I'll take somebody to the green. I'll say, okay, let's just work on green learning today. So do me a favor. Let's put one ball down. I, and I throw it somewhere on the green. And I point to a hole and I'll say, okay, do me a favor. I want you to read that putt the way you would read it and then and then stroke it and hit it. And oftentimes they'll hit it and it'll, you know, either they'll read it incorrectly or maybe it'll overbreak or underbreak compared to what they thought it was going to do. So, okay, now, so now you saw what the ball did. Let's now walk around the screen and, and you tell me when you realize what you didn't see originally, then now based on that result you see. And they, and they walk around and, and suddenly they go, oh, I didn't realize that this moved this way. I didn't see that view. I, I didn't walk over here. I said, okay, let's do it again. I'll throw a ball somewhere else and I'll putt to another hole. So, okay, hit the putt. And of course, something will happen. And I'll say, okay, let's walk around. Oh, there it is. I missed that spot right there. I didn't realize that. I think that if you practiced reading green by hitting putts, and then if you had a inappropriate result, if you just walked around and started looking at things after the fact in a, in a green reading session, your eyes will become more astute. Your ability to see things and look at the nuances on the surface will become better and you'll have more educated eyes. People don't spend time, ready for this, educating their eyes because they don't take time to walk around and see where mistakes are being made and what they missed. So I think there are subtleties on greens that architects build into greens, but the architect's job is to deceive you. Your job is to solve the puzzle. So they take a great deal of time in building nuances and subtleties in the surfaces and your job is to detect those nuances. I love that. Solve the puzzle. Very nice. Yeah. TP, before I let you go, you've got a wonderful newsletter that's available on your website, TomPatry.com. Talk about what, what folks are going to find when they go to your website and how they can sign up and get your, uh, get your newsletter. You know, a couple of things on the website, Chris, that are changing is uh, it's actually being redesigned over the course of this winter coming up. But the newsletter is available. You can sign up for the newsletter, which is quarterly, on the website. Number one, it's free. And in the newsletter, you'll get uh, information about upcoming school specials, lesson specials, et cetera. You also get, you know, a lot of swing tips and short game tips and information. You'll get uh, information and stories about the tour from time to time with players that, that have crossed my lesson tee that have helped me become a better teacher, that will help you become a better player. So the newsletter is pretty valuable and it's free, so why wouldn't you sign up for that? You know, free – if it's free, you should take three, right, Chris? I mean, that's easy. And then also on the, on the, also on the website is uh, is information about my online video academy, which people can subscribe to. And 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 then again, it's you can either do a six month unlimited program or a two year unlimited program for a very nominal amount of money um, as compared to an hourly uh, live lesson. Get a lot of mileage out of that. So that's there. And then there's a there's a whole blog page with with you know almost 15 years of uh, Articles that I've written for various magazines, there's video, there's the there's equipment page, there's all kinds, there's a junior golf section, there's a lot there. So if they visit TomPatry.com, they'll have access to all that stuff. And there's some, there's also some videos on there too that are, that are linked to my uh, YouTube channel. And talk about social media. How can we follow you on social media as well? Yeah, social media, which takes about uh, 25 hours a day of my life, is... Uh, two Facebook pages, there's an Instagram, there's an Instagram page, there's a LinkedIn page, you know, so every, every resource that you probably know out there, uh, 
is, is all available. You know, TomPatry.com is the website, and then at TomPatry is, is obviously um, is obviously Twitter. So it's pretty easy to find me in any of those places, Chris. Well, Tom, it's always a privilege having you as part of the show, my friend. I can't thank you enough for continuing to come back and, and join me as often as you do. Always insightful, always a lot of fun. Thank you for being here again tonight, my friend. Christopher, you, 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 I say this every time, and I'm going to always say it when I'm on with you. I think you do a great job. How somebody hasn't snatched you up, why you're not on the Golf Channel, why you're not on a major network, why you don't have more exposure on SiriusXM is beyond me. You do a great job. Somebody should find you. If anybody out there is listening, find Chris. Get him on a different network. Get him somewhere else. He's unbelievable. Thank you for having me. I appreciate being alongside so many great guests you have, and thanks for what you do for the Armed Forces by mentioning them and shouting them out. Um, and, boy, are your sponsors lucky to be part of your show. I appreciate you saying that, Tom. I appreciate you very much, my friend. Look forward to catching up with you again in a couple of weeks. In between now and then, all the best to you, your wife, and uh, all your lucky students. You're fantastic. Thanks, Chris. Appreciate it, pal. See you, Tom. That's a great Tom Patry, P-A-T-R-I. So TomPatry.com is his website. At Tom Patry is where you're going to find him on uh, social media, Twitter, over on Instagram. And uh, like you say, he's also got some stuff going on on LinkedIn as well. So a lot of great content. And, and to his point, why wouldn't you sign up for his newsletter? It's free. Got a lot of great content on it. And then also a path to get the Tom to take a look at Joe Swing over the winter as well. So Keep your game in shape by giving it to Tom, and he's going to turn you into a great player. So look forward to catching up with Tom again here in a couple of weeks. All right, folks, it is time for me to put a bow on this edition of Next on the T. I can't thank my guests enough. Mark Wiebe, Travis Fulton, and then right there, Tom Patry, for joining me. Check out our website, nextonthetea.net. You'll be able to keep up to date with what our guest schedule looks like, so who we've got coming on. You can also you can find this show available as a podcast on great sites, like Podbean. Download the Podbean app if you don't have it. Take us with you everywhere you go. You can get us on Spotify, iHeartRadio, Audioboom, Player.fm, and a great new site, LaunchpadDM.com. Check us out on there. Hit the subscribe button. We really appreciate that very much. Folks, as always, we appreciate you the very most. We can't thank you enough for making us a part of your golfing content. Until next week, hit them straight, my friends. Join us the same time every Tuesday.